Um, congratulations for forsaking the Austrian president uh, and finding your way up here. Um, it's going to be immensely interesting. Uh, I know that all of us have a vague idea that blogging is kind of important and we ought to know a little bit more about it. And we vaguely know that it was very important in the Obama campaign. Um, but I think a lot of us could do with understanding more about precisely how it worked and what the future implies for all of us. So we're really lucky to have uh, Sam Trump Felsen here from the uh, Obama campaign. Uh, he's actually a Harvard graduate, 2003, not four, um, and started off as a journalist um, and then promptly did as well as the Obama campaign. But he will tell you all about the experience and uh, after his uh, speech, we have lots of time for questions afterwards. Um, so uh, sit back and uh, enjoy. Sam. So uh, I could talk about this uh, topic for hours. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible. Uh, so this is a shortened version of my general presentation because I want you guys to be able to ask questions. We are at the university after all. Um, so before I begin talking about the Obama campaign, which I'm sure is why you're all interested in why you're in this room, uh, I just want to say a brief word about blogging generally. Um, uh, presumably a lot of the people in this room are interested in uh, running campaigns someday, uh, running advocacy organizations, uh, running nonprofits, or working in those kinds of institutions. And Having an online program is no longer a luxury. It's no longer something you do if you have extra time. I would argue that having an online program is the first thing you need to think about uh, when you're trying to build uh, a campaign or an organization. How are you going to build uh, a strategy that engages the grassroots? And to me, the blog is something that a lot of organizations look at as, again, something that they do if there's extra time. You know, something that they give to an intern to do, or a volunteer to do. Uh, as far as I know, I was the first full-time paid blogger on a campaign. Usually bloggers on campaigns are uh, also doing six other things, including email, tech support, fixing printers, setting up Wi-Fi, stuff like that. Uh, I was hired just to blog. And the reason why is because my boss, Joe Rosebar, is the guy who put together the online team for Obama, fundamentally believed that without inspiring content, we weren't going to be able to mobilize uh, a grassroots movement. Uh, it wasn't enough just to have this exciting candidate. We needed more. Uh, we needed to build our own sort of media operation and constantly feed our supporters new content and get them engaged. Uh, the, the blog was sort of the epicenter of the online campaign. It was the glue that held the online campaign together. The emails that we sent, when we asked for money, uh, when you know, we had videos on our YouTube channel, when we had content on Facebook, and on Twitter, and MySpace, uh, all of it was connected to what was happening on the blog, the story that was being told on the blog. So uh, when you think about your, the organizations that you'll be working in or starting, or the campaigns you'll be working in or starting, uh, uh, I would implore you <laughs> to have a blog, uh, to tell your story, uh, to leave it open for comments so that your supporters can engage in a conversation with you so that it's not just one way. Um, without a blog, there is little to no reason why anyone would ever return to your website. And way too many organizations make the mistake of um, building a website that has basic information uh, and then leaving it there. Uh, and that creates the impression uh, for users that it's basically a ghost town and they're envisioning you know, tumbleweeds blowing through there. It should never feel like that. Your site should feel alive. It should feel dynamic. And that's what a blog gives to your site. It's the lifeblood of your website. It's the reason why people are going to come back. It's what uh, connects people and it's what engages people. And also, without blog content, frankly, you know, there's nothing to post on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, I mean, there's some stuff, but, but most of what is posted in social media comes from somewhere, <laughs> usually a blog. So um, I will get at a lot of these uh, topics 
I'll keep talking while this is getting set up. 
she had most of the uh, establishment locked up. She also had the, the media perpetuating this narrative that uh, she was the inevitable winner. Before the campaign even started, there was this inevitability. Uh, there was also John Edwards, who was an extremely formidable candidate. Uh, he had the traditional left backing him up. Uh, he had the traditional, uh, he, had, he had the blogosphere backing him. He had the unions backing him. Uh, Obama didn't have any of the sort of establishment traditional support. So we basically didn't have a choice. We had to go directly to the grassroots. We had to kind of build our own infrastructure from scratch. Um, so that was, that's, that's, that's fine. Uh, early on, we saw these tremendous crowds. We saw 20,000 people in Texas, George Bush's state, show up in February of 2007. That's really, really early in the campaign. That was sort of unprecedented levels of enthusiasm. So while we didn't have all this traditional infrastructure uh, and, and establishment support, we had this. So our big question was basically, how are we going to harness that energy? How are we going to win? A lot of candidates over time have inspired enthusiastic movements. Howard Dean comes to mind, obviously. Uh, but they didn't figure out how to sort of channel that into productive ends and how to win. So again, we knew that it had to happen from the bottom up. It wasn't a choice. But it was also sort of easy for us to, to do that because our boss was a guy who started his career working as a community organizer in the south side of Chicago. But that story of Obama, who you know went to Harvard Law School, uh, was the head of the Harvard Law Review, could have made a ton of money on Wall Street, could have gone to Washington and uh, worked his way up through the you know, traditional power channels. Uh, and become very powerful early on. And instead, he went to work with poor people in the south side of Chicago. That story flowed like electricity throughout the campaign. Um, and all of us kind of tried to emulate what he was doing as a community organizer. We tried to push that message out as much as possible. So I'm going to give about five or six broad things. I'm going to try to go really quickly. Because uh, I realize I've already taken up too much time. And I want to open up the questions. Um, it was really important that all of the content on the blog felt real and authentic. This is a picture I took of Obama in a backyard somewhere. Uh, he had just grilled up some hot dogs for people. And uh, I like it because it just shows sort of what a regular guy he looked like. Um, so much of our support early on was based on this idea that Obama was a different kind of politician, um, that he didn't feel like a politician. Uh, that he felt that people felt that he was talking to them like adults, not children. And after eight years of being talked to by Bush, that was refreshing. Um, so we wanted to make sure that all of the content um, wasn't glib, sort of one-liners and, and cliches and slick political ads. We wanted to tell real stories. So I wrote thousands of blog posts, uh, and many of them, maybe even a majority of them, never even mentioned Obama. Uh, this is uh, from a post that I wrote early on in the campaign uh, when we had our 75,000 donor. By the end of the campaign, we had over 3 million donors. But at the time, 75,000 was like, oh my goodness, this is a revelation. Right? So we, we um, decided to basically, from time to time, take a, a magnifying glass and zoom in on these supporters. Because these numbers seemed incomprehensibly large, 75,000 people this quickly. Uh, and we wanted to show that every one of them had a story, had uh, an original motivation for getting involved. So I happened to call this guy, it was about 10.30 at night when his donation came in. Luckily he was from California, so it wasn't that annoying when I called him from Chicago. And uh, he told me a story, he said the reason why he had donated is the first time he had ever donated in his life. The reason why he donated is because his daughter uh, asked him the question, can I be, what, what can I be when I grow up? And he 
got choked up when she asked that because uh, he felt like he couldn't tell her anything. He felt like in America, you know, if you're African-American, you probably can't be president. But when Obama ran, he felt like he could look his daughter in the eye and tell her that she could, in fact, be anything. So we were moved by this story. We blasted it out to all of our supporters, and we asked supporters to share their story. On the donation page, we had, a, we had an extra box that people could fill in that just said, share your story, let us know why you decided to get involved. Uh, and an overwhelming response came in. We got hundreds of thousands of stories. And every time we got a new good one in, we would feature it on the blog, I would call people, follow up with them. Uh, these are a couple other memorable ones for me, very different people. Uh, Josh Stroman was actually, I believe, a Divinity School student, and maybe even a Kennedy School student recently. <coughs> and he just ran for city council in South Carolina in Columbia. He, he lost by a couple hundred votes. But he was a kid whose parents died uh, when he was young. Uh, he got into a lot of trouble with the law. He went to prison, actually. And when he was in prison, he decided that he wanted to turn his life around and he wanted to be a positive role model for uh, other young men like him, especially who didn't have uh, parental figures. And he ended up being the president of South Carolina Students for Obama. We felt like he had an amazing story, so we devoted a lot of resources. We flew our video team down to uh, shoot a documentary about him. The documentary ended up being about 20 minutes long, and we put this on our YouTube channel. This was considered crazy for two reasons. <laughs> One, uh, in, in modern campaigns, it seems insane to spend 20 minutes, to create a 20 minute documentary and spend about three weeks making this documentary uh, when you could be doing tons of other things and frankly when you could be spending that money on TV commercials or radio commercials or whatever. It's considered crazy. Um, and, and, and two, you know, why bother focus on an ordinary person? Like, come on, is that going to move that many votes? People thought this was kind of insane <laughs> at the time. Uh, but we sort of ignored them and kept telling stories. Uh, uh, Amy was a woman who wrote to us and told us that uh, her family had just gone bankrupt because their precondition, her husband had a precondition. Uh, he had pre-existing condition. He had cancer about 10 years ago. And his insurance companies were charging uh, him absurd premiums. And uh, he couldn't pay them, so his business went bankrupt. She uh, shared her story. I actually got in my car, drove for six hours into the middle of Iowa, and uh, interviewed her on video as well. Again, people were like, what? This, that is an insane thing to do during a campaign. You know, all for one blog post, all for one video? Um, but we had, we had this feeling that it really mattered to tell these authentic stories. Um, Amy's told me, she said, we're not the kind of people who go bankrupt. We pay our bills. We're basically good Americans. <laughs> um, uh, this shouldn't happen to us. This is not who we are. We're not those kind of people. This is not who we are. Obama took that line, this is not who we are, after we showed him this interview that we did, and made that kind of the central refrain in his health care speech when he announced his health care plan about a month later. Um, uh, I know I'm here to talk about blogging, but I also want to just, I know I'm also talking about video because a lot of our blog incorporated video and other multimedia. Uh, we created 2,000 videos in our YouTube channel, which is five times as many as other campaigns. Uh, overall, about a billion minutes of YouTube video content was consumed, uh, and that's 2,000 straight years of viewing. Uh, what's, what's really important about YouTube uh, and the reason why we invested so much uh, uh, in storytelling on the blog and on, and on YouTube was we felt like if we could create meaningful content that people would want to share, it would be even more powerful than creating a TV commercial. TV commercial is usually something that really angers people. People hate watching American Idol and having to stop to, to watch some annoying political commercial, right? What we did was the opposite. Instead of interrupting people, uh, we created content uh, and, 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 and let people share it with their friends. And how much more meaningful is it when you get a forward from a friend saying, check out this great video, check out this great blog post. Uh, 7.5 million people watched 
uh, Obama's 37-minute race speech, the speech that he gave in Philadelphia on YouTube, which is much more than all of the networks combined on TV uh, had viewers. Um, this number has actually gone up to about 10 million people. And that's not even counting all the bootleg copies of this speech that went around on YouTube. Um, so this was another uh, sort of preconceived notion uh, that we shattered, which was this idea that people only want to watch like short, snappy, funny things uh, online. Uh, people aren't, don't have the patience for meaningful content. Um, but we proved them wrong. We, this was our most successful video we ever had on our YouTube channel. Uh, the blog posts that I wrote, many of them were 1,500, 2,000 words. They weren't all quick, snappy you know, tweets and things like that. Um, I'm going to keep going. So just as, a, as kind of an overview um, uh, of, of the sort of landscape of new media and, and where blogging fits into it, uh, I've already talked about the difference between TV commercials and online videos. Um, uh, the other big difference, I would say, paradigm shift in uh, new media versus traditional media. Traditional media spends a lot of money on, on paper mail. Uh, it's really expensive, it's bad for the environment, and it doesn't really work. Uh, paper mail gets less than a 1% response rate. Uh, email is, um, first of all, instantaneous. Uh, it's a lot more effective. Uh, we raised $500 million on email, so obviously it raises a lot of money. And most importantly, you can test email in real time. You can test messages. You can test anything you want. You can test the button color on the donate button. Uh, and you can do that in a matter of hours. Testing on direct mail can take months and months and months. Uh, but again, I'm here to talk about blogs mostly. And another key lesson I want you to leave here today with is I think press releases, the age of the press release is over. I don't think anybody likes to read press releases. I have a lot of journalist friends. None of them read press releases. They all delete press releases the second they go into the inbox. Um, press releases are designed, in theory, for the media, but even the media don't like them. <laughs> um, we created, uh, we had blog posts. Blog posts were not designed for the press. Blog posts were designed for supporters. Uh, I was hired as somebody with zero political experience. I had never worked on a campaign. I had journalistic experience. Um, I worked at The Nation magazine at Frontline before this, but I had zero campaign experience. And I was hired particularly because I lacked political experience. Um, and I didn't have the kind of campaign communications jargon uh, to pollute the stuff that I was writing. Uh, my boss wanted me to write stuff that seemed intelligible and engaging to ordinary people. I was speaking directly to ordinary people. Um, Traditional media is focused on one-way communication, and new media is focused on, on having a conversation. Um, obviously, we allowed comments, and we'll get into that in a little while. But we also open stuff up for user-generated content, uh, for people to share their stories, for people to share their policy suggestions. It wasn't just, this is my message, take it or leave it. Um, traditional media, you know, again, it's aimed at winning over the press. Uh, uh, they are focused on a day-to-day -day battle in the trenches to get the AP reporter to write a positive story uh, about Obama so that somebody in Ohio who's an independent will maybe lean towards voting for Obama. Um, I was not really focused um, at all on the press. I wasn't even thinking about the press. I was thinking only about uh, motivating our grassroots, speaking directly to our supporters. And frankly, I wasn't even really that interested in converting people who didn't like Obama. My goal was to give people who did like Obama inspiring, engaging content so that they would feel much more invested in the campaign and so that they would then start evangelizing to their friends. To me, that's, that's a much more effective way of converting somebody rather than hammering them over the head with uh, TV commercials. Giving them inspiring content, uh, giving them the tools uh, to go out and, and, and do the evangelizing for you. Uh, so another important factor is that we tried to create as much niche content as possible. We tried to make it personal. Uh, I'll do this quickly. We had microsites for uh, tons of different constituency groups. Women for Obama, Latinos for Obama, people of faith for Obama. We had all different faiths. We had all different ethnic groups. We also had states. Every single state had its own microsite with its own blog. 
Um, I had three national bloggers working with me in Chicago, but I also had 10 paid bloggers slash videographers in the States who were uh, creating state-specific content uh, to make it as personal as possible. And the more personal we made it, the more people obviously felt the connection to it and felt like, oh my goodness, they made an Armenians for Obama video? That's great, I'm Armenian, I'm gonna share it with all my Armenian friends. Um, all right, access matters. Um, we uh, always tried to give juicy tidbits of information and exciting things to our supporters first. This really annoyed the mainstream media, particularly when uh, we decided to tell our supporters uh, who the vice president was going to be before we told the media. Um, so uh, the, every single day the media was harassing us, saying, who's the vice president going to be? Who's the vice president? All of them wanted to break that story. That was the big story, basically, of the general election. We said, we're going to tell our supporters first. So we sent out a text message at 3 a.m. that Biden was the nominee. Um, uh, this is a video that's not working right now, but it was David Clough, the campaign manager. Uh, every couple weeks, we talked directly to our supporters. We had him in his office with all of his rumpled papers all over the place uh, and his you know, nasty water bottle and everything. We didn't put him in the studio. We didn't have good lighting. We wanted it to feel like just a regular Skype video where he was talking directly to supporters and where they basically felt like they had a meeting with David Clough. Uh, so we did this every couple weeks. Uh, David Clough would give very specific information. He never talked to the media, ever. The media <laughs> couldn't stand it. But he did take the time to talk to our supporters um, and let them know how their money was being spent. Every time we did that, we saw spikes in donations because people felt that the campaign uh, was really invested in them and wanted to give them access, so they invested more in return. Uh, listening matters. Um, uh, first of all, uh, we weren't arrogant enough to think that we were the only people who could create good content. If I saw that somebody else created something uh, that was powerful, um, I would put it on the block. Um, how many people have seen this Hope poster? All right, every, basically everyone, right? And I've traveled all around the world uh, since the campaign, and I've seen this poster everywhere I've traveled. I mean, it's amazing how far this thing has, has spread. This was something that uh, we just stumbled upon on the campaign. We are like, that's a great poster. Let's put it on the blog, let's put it on the website. And then we even got such a great response when we put it on the blog that uh, we contacted Shepard Ferry, the artist, and asked him if we could make it an official campaign poster. Um, I assume everyone has also seen the Yes We Can video, right? I got email, I got about 20 emails at 5 a.m. saying, Sam, uh, you know, just from random people all across the country saying, Sam, you have to post this Yes We Can video on the blog. It's an amazing video. Uh, and we did, it got an amazing response. We then ended up sending it out to our whole email list. And we sent it from Michelle Obama, who said, uh, I just saw this video this morning. You know, I was moved to tears by it. It's a great video. You should all watch it. That email was our most successful email ever. It had a 150% open rate, which meant that one out of two people had actually forwarded it to a friend. So we were we were totally um, willing to uh, embrace uh, good user-generated content. There was also a lot of really bad user-generated content. <laughs> sort of politely said, "Great job." But, you know, we didn't feature it on the blog. So don't shy away from criticism from within. Uh, a lot of people ask me, so did you guys leave your comment section open? Did you censor people? Uh, not only did we leave the comment section open and not censor people, unless they said something like truly disgusting, like Obama is a terrorist who's going to you know, do something horrible. In that case, we might delete the comments, but basically we left it open. Uh, not only that, we allowed anyone who wanted to to create their own blog. So I was the official campaign blogger, but there were hundreds of thousands of unofficial campaign bloggers who had their own blogs on mybarackobama.com. Fox News loved to sort of cherry pick, you know, the, the, the random post here or there by a crazy person. Uh, but there were, there were also legitimate criticisms that popped up uh, against Obama. Uh, a group started um, uh, attacking Obama for changing his position on the FISA bill. Uh, which was uh, a bill that increased the government's power to uh, listen in on phone calls. Uh, they felt like this was uh, 
a terrible blow to privacy rights that Obama was a hypocrite, and they demanded their money back uh, that they had donated to the campaign. Um, this group, which, which was started on MyBarackObama.com, uh, which had its own blog, which was continually attacking Obama on this topic, grew to 20,000 people in about a week. Started getting coverage on the New York Times, the AP, it got picked up on TV. Um, we brought this to uh, then Senator Obama, and we said, you know, we're, we're not going to delete this group, obviously, because, you know, not only would it violate our principles of democracy, but it's also about the stupidest possible thing you can do. Uh, delete <laughs> something like this online, it's going to make your problem ten times worse. Uh, but we brought it to him, and uh, not only did he respond, but he actually uh, wrote a lengthy, very thoughtful response, where he sort of broke down why he had changed his mind on the issue. And he then said, look, I actually really respect the fact that you guys uh, organized this very successful protest on my website. It shows the power of community organizing. You got my attention. And I hope we can continue this conversation. Um, so we shared that on our blog, and then we had um, two of his top policy advisors, who are now two of the top policy advisors in the White House, um, spend an hour and a half responding to people's questions uh, about why Obama was supporting FISA. Um, after the campaign, I actually bumped into the guy who started this group at a conference. And I said, you know, nice to meet you. Uh, great job with that protest, by the way. And, you know, what did you think of the response? What, you know, was it satisfying? And he said, absolutely. He said, after you guys did that, um, we were even happier than if he had re reversed his decision. Because he actually showed that he cared, and he was listening, and he was having a conversation with us. Uh, and none of them asked for their money back. This is a picture, this is the proof that, they, that his policy advisor was sitting at my desk responding to comments. Um, so there's also this idea uh, uh, that campaigns are obsessed with, with creating sort of viral content. Writing one blog post or creating one video that's going to get linked to by everyone on the internet magically. Uh, it's basically a myth that things go viral. Uh, if this was a video that got 350,000 views, many of our videos got over a million views. Uh, this got 350,000 views in a couple days. Uh, but if you actually look at the analytics on YouTube, which I encourage all of you, if you're ever going to have videos, look at the stats on YouTube, uh, and you look where stuff was coming from. We got tons of hits from Facebook. Well, we had 3 million Facebook followers at the time. Now there's like 10 million Facebook followers. We posted it to our social networks and got tons of clicks from there. We got tons of clicks from MySpace. I built relationships with top bloggers at Daily Post and Huffington Post. And uh, when the time came, we had good content, I would, I would send it to them and say, hey, I think you can post this. Um, it's through the relationships that we built and through the networks that we had uh, that we drove so much traffic to, uh, to our content. So we were engaging communities everywhere. We had a huge following on Facebook, Flickr, Twitter, uh, and a lot of other social networks. We were active on niche. Uh, ethnic social networks like blackplanet.com. We had about a million uh, African-American followers on blackplanet.com. Uh, we didn't go everywhere, though. We're not on second life. Uh, this, is, this is why uh, Mark Warner, who was a candidate early on, was uh, did a, a live uh, town hall second life, and there was a weird guy in a spandex outfit. We're not going to do that with Obama. Uh, so finally, um, not everything uh, is positive and cheerful in campaign land, as, as you all know. Uh, uh, it, it was a vicious battle, uh, especially in the uh, general election. And uh, you know, we did create a lot of hopeful, positive, uplifting content. But we also had to fight back quickly. Uh, John, we were determined not to do what Kerry's campaign did, which was hope that the swift boat attacks would just die down and go away, and people would pay attention to other stuff. So uh, we created. Uh, a, a, a microsite called Fight with Smears, where, which was another microblog site where every time a lie came up about Obama, we immediately wrote uh, a blog post that was a rebuttal. We also had uh, an email list called the Action Wire that people could sign up for, where they would get these rebuttals instantly. And if, say, somebody who was lying about Obama were to go on a radio show and we knew when he was going to go on, we let our supporters on the action wire know. We said, you know, why don't you give the 
radio show, call and let them know what you think. And the first time we tried this, about 3,000 people called this one radio station in Chicago. It drove them absolutely crazy. But um, those are the kind of you know really sort of tough tactics that we employed, and um, it worked. Uh, people people were not as um, uh, well. A lot of people believe the lies about Obama, but we gave our supporters content uh, to fight back quickly. Um, this is an example uh, uh, of, of something I did. I, every time McCain put out an ad uh, that was just full of lies, and we did this a lot, um, uh, I would run down the hall with my video camera and film this guy, Brian Deese, who uh, is only a little bit older than me and is the guy who's the architect of the uh, automobile bailout thing. He's a pretty impressive guy. But I would run down the hallway, videotape him giving a point-by-point -point rebuttal and then post this on our YouTube channel and on the blog. Um, and what was cool about this is, this is like a wonky sort of rebuttal, point-by-point -point rebuttal of uh, a commercial. Uh, and it got 140,000 views. Um, uh, and people were really eager to disseminate this and, and, and use this content to, to fight back and, and spread the truth. So uh, we even went as far as to create uh, entire, we, we created a series of microsites uh, when the going got really rough, like when McCain started attacking Obama about Bill Ayers and all these different things, we created a whole site called the Low Road Express, which was a take on Straight Talk Express, uh, to, to, to document uh, basically McCain's hypocrisy and the fact that he was constantly attacking Obama despite claiming that he was taking the higher road. Uh, so, like I said before, content is uh, the glue that holds the campaign together. Um, uh, we, a lot of what people talk about when they talk about Obama's online success is the fact that he raised half a billion dollars. Uh, uh, and the fact that three million people were engaged on MyBarackObama.com uh, and the fact that those volunteers uh, were the engine that uh, elevated Obama to success in the caucus states, helped him win the primary, and of course win the presidency. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to do that, I believe, without uh, having powerful, uh, inspiring content on the blog uh, to fuel people and give give people the motivation to continue. Remember, this was a two-year slog. <laughs> okay, uh, people were exhausted, but we were constantly. Uh, building this large narrative, this, this larger narrative, um, that uh, Obama, sure, he was the candidate, uh, but this campaign was actually not about Obama. Our, our catchphrase was, this campaign is about you. Um, the, the, the night that we raised the most money in the entire campaign was when Sarah Palin uh, was announced at the Republican National Convention as the Vice President. <laughs> And I don't know how many people remember this, but she stood up and she said, being a small town mayor is kind of like being a community organizer, except you have actual responsibilities. Uh, when she said that, um, I looked across the room at my boss, and, and we had a whole plan to send out this different fundraising email the next day. And, um, and we knew that we had to drop all of that. Uh, it was about 11.30 at this point. We wrote up a quick email, uh, and the essence of the email was that Palin hadn't just attacked Obama, she had attacked all of the grassroots supporters. Um, because we built this idea that, that the grassroots supporters, that each one of them was basically a mini Obama, a community organizer in their own right. And when she attacked community organizers, she was attacking everyone who was a part of the campaign. Uh, this got an overwhelming response. We, we raised about $13 million in 24 hours, which is by far the most in history. And most campaigns would dream of raising that much in two years, and we raised that in one night. And the reason why we did it is because we had been building this story, telling this story over and over for a year and a half, that ordinary people can make a difference. We were telling their stories in depth. Uh, we were showing the level of their commitment. And, um, and so that's why it triggered such a a, 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 a huge response uh, when Sarah Palin made that attack. So again, through this content, we built relationships. We built real relationships with our supporters. A lot of people, a lot of candidates walk around saying that they're running a grassroots campaign, that they put people first. How many of them actually mean it? I don't know, but we, we did mean it. We invested a ton of resources into telling people stories and into elevating them to the forefront of the campaign. And of course, we put people to work. We gave them actual 
responsibilities. Uh, we, we gave them concrete things to do. Um, and so when they were inspired, we didn't just let them run around and, and do sort of creative uh, modern dances. We said, knock on doors, make phone calls, recruit your friends to come to house parties, uh, do real things about the campaign. And that was the result. So uh, I realized I already went way over my time, but uh, I'm going to try to open this up for as many questions as possible. If you don't have to ask your question, you can email me. And you can also, if you want to, communicate with me on Twitter. I'm Sandia on Twitter. So thank you very much. about uh, half an hour for questions, so uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, yeah, I would have kept my questions, but I found that extremely inspiring, and I thought the campaign was inspiring, so I just wanted to know that. Now you're going to attack this. No, no, it's all, I mean, it's not, it's that my questions aren't, like, celebratory, it's they're a little bit That's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just So, two questions that come to mind is, I look at the the number of YouTube hits for the Joshua video in South Carolina was mm -hmm. down for two weeks. Yep. 42,000. And you see that's very much, especially when you start talking about the other numbers. Right. So I'm curious about what, by what metrics, do, how do you set your goals? How do you know that it's worth it? Um, you know, and if you can actually deconstruct that specific investment a little sure. more. And then secondly, I was at your website, which is seems like the most recent post was in June. Yes. And so <laughs> the have. question I have for you, which might be real to many of us, is that when you get big day doing the work you do, it's hard to maintain the site. Yes. So what are the strategies around looking like you like to Yes, yes. Uh, uh, she's right. I've got my own site, uh, Fall Off, uh, which, you're right, you're right to scold me on that. Uh, uh, yes, well, frankly, right, right. Well, I mean, a lot of it boils down to the resources and how you're going to allocate resources in your organization. Uh, and, and again, um, I don't expect every organization to be able to hire a full time blog. But uh, at the very least, you should be mobilizing volunteers. And, and you know, one of the, you should, if you can, pay a professional to do it. But at the very least, you should be mobilizing volunteers to, to, to create content for you. Um, and you know, the, the main point I'm trying to make is that far too many organizations look at new media as, still look at new media, the new media team as like the nerds who like hang out in the basement in their pajamas, like doing like fixing printers, right? And in fact. We raised two-thirds of the money on the campaign, right? Like, I would argue that we, Obama would not be president uh, were it not for what the online team was able to accomplish. So, um, so organizations should take that seriously. It's true. I, I'm a one-man band, so but you're right. I should update my mindset. But to your question about Joshua. So you must be hiring them, right? Uh, <laughs> hopefully after this. I'll, I'll uh, Joshua, first of all, 40,000 views for that, for at that point, when we created that video, we created that video before Obama went Iowa, before there was this gigantic wave of support for Obama. So I would argue 40,000 views for a 20-minute video is still pretty impressive. But a lot of these videos that we invested a lot of time and money in did not get a lot of hits, right? Um, and, uh, and early on, when I was writing, I thought I was writing my best stuff when I just arrived, and I was writing, just cranking out story after story after story. Uh, we were getting really not much traffic on the blog. By the end of the campaign, we were getting about three million uniques a month, which is a lot. Um, it was the most viewed page in any political website's history. Early on, we were not getting that much traffic. Uh, so I had my moments of doubt where I was like, why are we continuing to do this? Uh, why don't we just make crazy viral video mashups with you know people running around bumping into walls and doing silly things that get on YouTube and go viral? And um, and and my boss basically convinced me. He said, "Look, if we continue to to do this, if we continue to tell story after story, um, it's going to build this narrative that we're serious about this being a grassroots campaign." Um, Individually, they're not going to go viral and get a million hits. But as a collective, we're going to build that narrative. And eventually, if we did, by the, by the general election, we were getting insane traffic. Um, all of our videos were getting insane traffic. There's a video, uh, which all of you should watch, uh, of a guy named Charles on our YouTube channel. Again, just like a story of a regular guy. 
that got about a half million views. This is a story of just an 80-year-old man talking to a camera and got about a half million views. So we had the faith in, that, that would, it would work. And it was crazy at the time, but it, it did work. This guy back here. Quick follow-up. Uh, can, can, can folks, where's the um, microphone? Because uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, right here. Um, just for the, for the, I actually don't have a question. Just a quick follow-up. Sam is being too modest. When we used to uh, run a blog to the bottom a long time ago. And That's right. We used to do, like, you'd have stuff that's topical, then you'd have stuff that was like more think pieces and keep it in the vault. And so when you didn't have something to write about, right. and now you forgot because you're big time. <laughs> you used to that's true. Elliot, Elliot uh, and I were in this time as, as undergrads. Uh, and uh, I, I started as uh, a blogger in 2004. Kind of in the, you know, not the earliest stage of the, the political blogosphere, but uh, I was doing it um, on my own, uh, spending way too many hours a day on the blog and not getting much traffic. But eventually, I did get traffic. That's what helped me actually get hired in the nation and, uh, and move on to the Obama. I saw David Plouffe speak um, maybe a couple of months ago uh, when he was selling his book. And um, he said that in four years, uh, in 2012, I guess it's two years from now, um, that uh, so much of the information, we will be getting information in a different way um, from handheld phones and most of our, that's where most of our content will come from. So can you talk a little about what you think is next? Like what's it going to look like in 2012? Yes. How is this going to be different? This is actually one of my favorite questions. Uh, 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 first of all, um, I, I am definitely um, a, a huge technology nerd. I buy the things like the iPad the day that they come out. Uh, I tend to get a little too excited about what these technologies might do. But I think, for example, with the iPad, uh, you're going to be able to go into a cafe and immediately click on a video of an Obama speech and be able to sort of show your friends anywhere you want uh, content from the campaign. That's a, that's definitely a big new step. I mean, the iPhone was pretty nascent when we started the campaign. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and what that means, the big sort of paradigm shift with MyBarackObama.com was that we took activity that traditionally had to happen in a campaign office and we allowed people to do it at home, right? So for example, uh, when I was a student, and I was in students for Bill Bradley when I, was at, when I was at Harvard way back in the day, I had to go to a campaign office, and they would give me a call sheet. Uh, and I would have to sit there and like, talk in front of all these other people. It was always like embarrassing to call. But, <laughs> like, you know, and, um, and now, with MyBarackObama.com, people were able to, to, to bring up a call sheet from their bedroom. Um, what's, what's cool about the next sort of phase is with all these mobile devices, um, you'll be able to do stuff from anywhere, not just from your house, but from anywhere. Uh, if you're waiting uh, at the bus stop uh, and the bus is taking too long, you'll be able to pull up uh, the MyBarackObama.com iPhone app and make three phone calls and register the data of whether or not people supported Obama just while you're waiting at the bus stop. So those things, I think, are, 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 are cool. But at the end of the day, um, all of the newest technologies should be promoting the oldest technology, which is knocking on doors and people talking face to face. Uh, 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 nothing is ever going to replace voter-to-voter, uh, uh, -voter, face to face contact. So what we tried to do, but we were never, that's why we didn't care about things like Second Life, for example. Like we weren't interested in having people just kind of talk to each other online. All of our stuff was about getting people to do things in the real world. You had a question. I wanted to know about the reactions of your opponents, like the, how Republicans they behave to your blog. Like, I don't know how the uh, how your blog was really working, but was it possible for a person like me who's in your opposition to upload a video which is totally against your ideology or your like all this stuff? So how do you react to that? And how do we react to the Republicans? So uh, the, the Boston Globe did a, uh, a chart where they compared the most popular words on our blog versus the most popular words on McCain's blog. Uh, the most popular word on McCain's blog was Obama. 
because uh, they were constantly attacking Obama. Uh, we basically never mentioned uh, the king um, on our blog. Now, we did have, as I showed you before, we had these other sort of microsites like Fight the Smears, where we were, you know, doing a lot of that fighting back. And a lot of that, by the way, happened through the Democratic Party, not through Obama for America, because we really wanted to keep the Obama for America brand clean and positive and hopeful, uh, and not kind of engage in that back and forth uh, stuff on the blog. But we really tried to, we, we really tried on the Obama for America blog to kind of ignore the attacks rather than. So that means if I write something bad on the blog, yeah. either you're going to delete it or you're going to try to reply. If you wrote, if, so if you created your own blog on my, oh, I seriously, if you created your own blog on my Obama.com, if you wrote something that was a defamatory lie, for example, Obama is Malcolm X's son, which some blogs, some people think, right? Uh, uh, then we might delete that, right? Um, uh, if you wrote that Obama's healthcare policy was terrible, you would allow it. I was interested in the, the mention you had on the screen that said that no more press releases, and that that was going to be. Um, really obsolete. I, I'm curious to know about the relationship to the press. Is there still a, a, an institutional formal function um, of getting information out? Or are you just think, saying this will now leapfrog? Well, we, we did have a huge communications team that was spending all their time dealing with the press. And one of the interesting things about the Obama campaign is that there was kind of a clear division between the communications team and the new media team. Um, the new media team was focused on talking to supporters. The communications team was doing press releases all day. Um, I would argue that the press releases um, would have actually been more effective had they just been blog posts. Because with blog posts, you get to communicate directly to people. And guess what? Reporters are people too. So they're going to read your blog post anyway. Um, so uh, there are plenty of organizations that, I mean, most organizations still do use press releases. But I just feel like you can kill two birds with one stone if you're talking in plain English and just speaking uh, directly to supporters because the reporters are still going to be consuming that and, and, and getting the information. And they're not going to like be like, oh, they're not sending press releases. We don't, we don't care about what they have to say anymore. So that's kind of my larger point. And I don't think press releases are going to go away for you know several more years. But I think smart organizations um, should at least do both, and not just focus on questions. Are there any other questions? I had a question about strategy. So um, maybe not in the beginning, but somewhere along the middle, where you knew that you had a really strong base of supporters, what was the strategy for utilizing new media moving forward? Because what, what I'm hearing now is, is that you wanted to really highlight the supporters and tell those anecdotes. And you also were, you know, really quick on being reactionary toward, towards bad media press. But in the run up to, you know, to the actual general elections and then thereafter, was there an actual overarching strategy? Was there someone sitting there saying, you know, this is how new media is going to fit in with our overall media strategy, and we're going to take new media, focusing on these small supporters first, and then we're going to focus on, you know. The West Coast states and the East Coast states. Do you know what I mean? I'm just curious whether there was that strategy. Well, what was what was what was interesting is that um, that strategy certainly didn't come from the communications team. Um, we wrote our own strategy. It didn't come from the fundraising team, uh, the high dollar fundraising team, which you know wanted us to constantly send out emails asking for money. Um, we we wrote our own rules, um, and again. That was part of what was so radical and crazy about what we were doing. Uh, most, uh, basically every campaign in history, uh, if they had an immediate team at all, uh, the new media team was getting orders from the communications team. And being told, you know, the communications team had a plan that week just to talk about healthcare, the new media team would have to only blog about healthcare that week. We didn't have to do it. We did, we did our own thing. And really, um, a lot of it was stuff that I kind of made up as I was going along. I, I happened to be inspired by the fact that Obama was a community organizer. So I really emphasized that even when the traditional communications team wasn't talking about Obama being a community organizer at all. 
Um, that just happened to be something that I thought was going to be inspiring to the grassroots. So we really kind of like walked to the beat of our own drum, um, which, you know, looking back on it, I'm, I'm still kind of surprised that we were given that kind of um, latitude to, to, to do that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the only reason why we were is because Obama knew that we weren't going to beat Hillary Clinton at the traditional game. Like, she just had that game down cold. <laughs> she had all the best traditional strategies. We were, we were only going to beat her, basically, we created a new playbook, and if we did stuff that was different, we would be Hi, I'm Whose idea was it to create the new media team, and was it hard to get funding to check photo with the communications team? Uh, so, it was, I mean, ultimately it was Obama's idea to have a new media team, to have a new media director be one of the senior staff members. So there were about eight senior staff, uh, and one of them was, was my boss, Joe Rosebergs, who was the new media director. Uh, uh, David Clough also really believed in the power of new media, uh, and that's a real credit to him, because you know, he came from the traditional world of campaign. Uh, early on, there were about seven people there, um, uh, including Chris Hughes, who was a Harvard grad, who was the co-founder of Facebook. Uh, there were about seven people there, um, and it was really hard to get funding. And we were all frustrated, and I remember complaining about it, you know, saying, you know, we're such an important part of this campaign, we're not getting the resources we needed. Well, eventually, the money started really rolling in, and by that point, Nobody could turn us down when we asked for more money because we were just breaking records left and right. We were raising, uh, we raised a hundred million dollars in one month, uh, and so it was hard for them to say no. You can't have an extra couple hundred thousand dollars for video cameras when you're doing stuff that's clearly working. So that's how we proved it by raising. And frankly, if anyone's ever worked on a campaign, that's usually how it works. You raise money, you get you get more power. I have a post-election question, which hopefully you will be willing to answer. Um, some people think that the Obama administration has sort of lost control of the message that they so tightly uh, understood during the campaign. So I was wondering, number one, if you think that that's true and you agree with that sentiment, and number two, if you have any thoughts on why that is or how that happened. Um. I don't think anyone can deny that uh, the, uh, the Obama campaign was extremely effective at promoting uh, a message during the campaign, and that that's been incredibly difficult now. I mean, obviously, the Tea Party uh, has dominated the media narrative for over a year. Um, and uh, look, I know a lot of people in the White House, which is why I don't really like to second guess their decisions because I know how incredibly difficult and constraining it is to be there versus on a campaign when we could experiment and we didn't have to get things approved by a hundred different people and pass tons of different legal barriers and whatever. Um, but, you know, uh, certainly it seems to me that um, one thing that could be approved um, is, is, is just having more of the attitude we have on the campaign of uh, of, of rallying uh, the grassroots to actually help Obama. Um, and, you know, part of my, you know, sort of critique of the way things have gone the first couple of years uh, is that um, they've, they've sort of been doing things the traditional way of, you know, talking to Congress members individually, doing backroom talking, and, um, and not, you know, trying to mobilize supporters to go knock on doors and, and call people and get the legislation passed. Although, I will say they're doing that more and more. And supporters are still, I think, surprisingly active, given how exhausted everybody uh, was after the election. But anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying this. And I will say one more thing, which is just that um, uh, you know, the, the, the media, um, I think, was a little bit hard on themselves because I think I think the media took a lot of flack for basically carrying carrying water for the Obama campaign and felt that you know when he became president like it was time to you know you know get get into much harsher kind of critique mode and you know and frankly they had 
the Tea Party movement, which was new and different and something else to talk about. And I really just think that that's taken hold. And no matter what the White House is doing, it's really hard to break out of that. They're actually doing a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, they just rolled out uh, yesterday um, a new initiative where they're going to tell stories in all 50 states of people whose lives are literally being saved by the healthcare plan. And like most people in this room probably didn't even know about that, but they're doing tons of interesting stuff. They're also uh, almost every week doing live chats with senior administration officials. I mean, that's pretty cool in a democracy that anybody who wants can basically ask questions to a senior administration official. Most people in this room don't even know about it because the media, instead of talking about that, is basically talking about the Tea Party, which I don't blame them. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon to, 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 to report on, but you know, they, they are doing so. They deserve credit for, for, for the stuff. Thank you. I don't know if it's my microphone. Yeah, you Hi, uh, I'm very interested if you had a strategy, a vision from the very beginning and then cutting down to tactics and activities because it's very fashionable to think of this uh, nowadays, but maybe sometimes you just change the direction. So did you have a strategy, kind of strategy from the very beginning? Thanks. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, the, 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 the basic strategy that we never wavered from was uh, telling people's stories. Um, you know, even when there weren't that many views, like we stuck to that strategy. Uh, and even when all the other campaigns were focusing their gloves on constantly attacking Obama, uh, we stuck to a strategy of basically not attacking back, at least on our main bluff. Um, I would argue that that's actually, the, the, the real credit for that goes to David Clough, the campaign manager who um, really, really never changed the message ever on the campaign. The message was always the same throughout the entire campaign. The McCain campaign changed their message almost every week. The Clinton campaign changed their message a bunch of times too. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, of course there were like little tactical battles and as you saw, we, we responded very forcefully to, uh, to attacks that came our way, but we never got into the muck. And, and dealt with the kind of dirty attacking back and forth stuff. Um, we really never did that. I think there was one time that I can remember when Obama attacked uh, McCain for having eight houses. Uh, I don't know if folks remember this. Um, that, was, that was like one of the few times we did it, and you could see that Obama wasn't even really comfortable doing it because he knew that it was kind of undermining the strategy we had the whole time, which was to transcend that kind of stuff. So um, that's, I think, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a really key lesson which is, uh, which is sticking to a plan uh, and trying to see it through. Obviously, it's got to be a good plan. <laughs> but This is uh, going to have to be our last question, I'm afraid. Uh, Hi, I just wanted to build on a discussion point you, you brought up earlier. I think it's really exciting, clearly. I mean, you've demonstrated that this has significant potential. But do you have any thoughts on sort of the, the tension now that we're building between authenticity and getting access to senior leaders and time for actual decision making. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, first of all, we, on the campaign, we did not um, take much of Obama's time. Um, uh, we did take Plouffe's time. Um, uh, and frankly, he had a little bit of time for us because he spent zero time talking to <laughs> Whereas most campaign managers spend like 90% of their time <laughs> talking to the media. They spend zero time talking to the media. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, I think um, uh, yeah, decision making has to happen. Um, but the reason why the president uh, does spend time still, you know, recording videos every week talking directly to supporters is because, uh, you know, if the communications piece isn't there, um, you know, if the public is not behind uh, what you're working towards, you know, you're stuck. You're stuck. So these tools um, provide the opportunity to basically be on all the time, to have your own news network, basically. And Obama, with his zillions of Facebook followers, you know, could basically be spending all day walking around the video camera, you know, talking to people. Obviously, he doesn't do that. Um, you know, and, and there's a certain degree, frankly, 
that they have to think about now, which we didn't have to think about in the campaign, which is um, how much direct communication with the public is too much? How much is going to start freaking people out and making them feel like we live in some weird authoritarian society where the president's talking to people all the time? But eventually, um, you're also going to have competitors, too. And so it, it's trending It's trending that way. I, I see okay. that kind of as, as right. potentially dangerous for yes. So, so, so you're saying with transparent, the more transparent you are, the more you're basically like letting your opponent know what your chess move is in advance. No, 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 no. More because your opponent's now going to want to engage in the dialogue on the same playing field. Right. So now you're sort of spending more and more time doing this, and less and less. And at the end of the day, there's only 24 hours. Right. But again, we were not, we were really not focused on getting into back and forth uh, with with opponents. Um, you know, we were focused basically on just talking to our supporters. Kind of doing an end around in the media, talking directly to our supporters and, and, and sharing our message. So, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Right. Thanks very much.